You can have a seat. Oh, good morning, church. Um, it is a joy to preach the word to you and with you on a Sunday morning. I feel that way every time I come. Um, I would be lying if I told you that joy is the only emotion that I'm bringing with me on the stage. This morning, I'm not, my wife would happily tell you, an expressively emotional person, okay? She, she does that for both of us in our family. And so it was a little bit, I didn't, I didn't mean that quite the way it sounded. Um, so it was a little out of character for me last week to be sitting in the fourth row over here with tears just streaming down my face. It's not like me. Um, I'm not an elder here. I'm not, I'm not on staff here. And that isn't me distancing myself from the church. Quite the contrary. I'm a member here. This is my church. My son. Yeah. My son was baptized not that long ago over there. My kids have been involved in the nursery, in the kids' programming, in the junior high, in the senior high. Uh, I told my wife this week, I think there's probably a stain on the carpet in every corner of this church that our family is responsible for, okay? Um, But the church is not a building. The church is her people. And that's why this week has been a really hard week, because on every facet of this conversation that we're having as a congregation right now, There are people that I care deeply about who've poured into me, invested in me, who've loved my kids really well. There's an indebtedness that I carry with me. And so there's been a sense of sorrow for me as I've prepped this week and just seeing that grief in our congregation, through our congregation, pain, knowing that people have felt pain by our congregation. Like all all of this together has just been in a place of sorrow preparing for this morning. And I don't say that for your pity. I don't say that to project that on you. You probably don't carry that exact same emotion with you, and that's 100% fine. I just can't start this sermon without telling you what I'm carrying in with me this morning. Like, I need to be able to preach this to myself this morning, and I'm walking in with a really tender heart. First time I've ever preached with Kleenex in my back pocket, if I'm being honest, for real. Um, So one of the things you should know about our teaching team is that, um, which is one of the ways that I serve, I'm I'm not, I'm up here a couple times a year, but every week I sit with the scriptures and the people who are teaching and we talk about what the text might want to do in our congregation. And and those scriptures are chosen way out in advance. I mean, those those are lined out months and months in advance, sometimes over a year in advance. We don't write the sermons until the week before, but the, the topics and the so when, when Tyler asked me if I would preach this morning, I was, I was like, yeah, that sounds like a blast, Tyler. Thank you for that. <laughs> um, but when he asked me that, my first follow-up question was, do you want me to choose something that I think would be appropriate for our congregation right now in this moment? And he said, Ben, no, why don't you do what we always do? Why don't you trust? Because I, I hadn't looked at the scripture yet. He hadn't looked at the scripture yet for this week. He said, why don't we do what we always do? Why don't we trust that the Lord knew out in advance what our congregation needed and prep that sermon. I said, okay. So I turned to Jeremiah 31, chapter heading being, the Lord will turn mourning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, to joy. And I was like, Lord, I don't know if I'm ready to preach that message yet. But starting in verse 10, here's the word that Jeremiah wrote for us today. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations. 
and declare it in the coastlands far away. Say, he who scattered Israel will gather him, will keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob and has redeemed him from hands too strong for him. They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion, and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, and the oil, over the young of the flock and the herd. Their life shall be like a watered garden, and they will languish no more. And then shall the young women rejoice and dance, and the young men and old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. I will feast the soul of the priests with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you know what every person in this congregation needs. You know what the people who are watching online need. And Jesus, I trust that. I trust you, Holy Spirit. And so I pray that you would meet each one uniquely, no matter the emotion they walk in with. I pray that you would meet each one where they are in the space that they're at right now through your word and your presence. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So the picture we have in our text, to sum it up, would be singing, abundance, joy, flourishing, happiness. And you might be like, man, read the room, Ben. It's not where we're at as a church. Neither was Jeremiah. Perhaps you weren't paying attention at the verbs in this. There are three in here that are past tense. Verses 10 and 11, God scattered Israel. Did you notice that? He was the one who was responsible for their scattering. He ransomed Jacob and he redeemed him. But all of the other things that are in this passage are future tense. All of them. Listen to him again. He will keep Israel as a shepherd. They shall come and sing aloud. They shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord. Their life shall be like a watered garden. They shall languish no more. The young women shall dance. The young and old shall be merry. I will turn. I will comfort them. I will feast. My people will be satisfied. This is not a present promise, you guys. This is a future promise that Jeremiah is giving to his people. God has set something out in advance for them, but it's not for right now. It's not a present tense promise. You see, I want it to be right now because I really like happiness and I really like pleasure. But when you take happiness and pleasure and you set them out in the future, when joy is set out in the future tense, there's a name for that and it's called hope. It's something that sits just beyond the horizon that you can't quite see yet. And it doesn't describe your present tense. It describes the future tense for you. That's what hope is. We don't like that, you guys. We don't like that. We want to drag hope into the present tense. Maybe that's why Solomon said in Proverbs 13 that hope deferred makes the heart sick. We don't like to live in that space. Like, you get it. You know that life is hard. I don't have to preach that to you. But if you could, you would choose to fast forward that to get to the part that isn't hard anymore. Why wouldn't you? Like, you understand Illinois February and Friday flush, the slush storm thing that we had this past week. I want to fast forward to the 70 degree days of May. I want that. I want that spiritually. I want that physically. If I can give a different metaphor for you this morning, one that's been in my head all week, it's like Easter weekend. I don't like Friday. Jesus' 
death on the cross and him being put in the tomb, but I can draw a line. I can tolerate Friday because I can draw a line straight to Sunday. I am all about Resurrection Sunday. I'm all about the power of God being revealed. I'm all about Jesus busting out of that tomb. And I kept thinking all week this week about Saturday. Saturday of Resurrection Weekend. The day of waiting. Is there hope? Yeah. Jesus knew exactly what would happen. He told the disciples exactly what would happen. But Saturday is hard on faith, you guys. It's hard to sit with Jesus still buried in the ground and trust that the words that he said about his resurrection would be true, which perhaps is why when Jesus in John 20 shows up and appears to the disciples, they're in a locked room, scared to death that the Jewish people are going to do the same thing to them that they did to Jesus. Saturday is hard It's hard on our faith. Most of us have no idea how to live in that Saturday, the day of waiting. So if you came this morning and you're like, man, I hope that there's there's a resurrection theme. I hope that that we're here to preach joy. We are in a way, but I want you to remember that the author that we're studying right now is Jeremiah for crying out loud, the weeping prophet, the weeping prophet. He wrote a book called Lamentations. This was his mission. Um, We're told about it in the beginning of Jeremiah, verses uh, 9 and 10 of chapter 1. The Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. This is his mission. This is Jeremiah's mission. And he's living in Jerusalem. He's a prophet to the southern kingdom. And you say, I I thought God loves Jerusalem. I mean, that's sort of the representation of his people. Absolutely, he does. I mean, that's, that's the, Jesus later on would weep over Jerusalem. We're told he would look at Jerusalem and say, oh, I sent prophets and you wouldn't listen. Weeping over Jerusalem and saying, I wish I could gather you like a mama hen gathers her chicks under his wing, but you wouldn't stand for it. This is a place that God loves. So why, in our passage today, why did he scatter Israel? It says specifically that God did that. Why? Why would he do that? Well, let me tell you why. This is what the people of God were doing. The people of God were going to the temple, and they were worshiping just like they were supposed to do. And then they were walking out of the temple, and they were worshiping at the altars of the Canaanite gods. And you say, oh, that doesn't sound so bad. It is so bad. The Canaanite gods, the the practices connected to them were terrible, including child sacrifice. And so God's people were walking into his temple and singing his praises and walking out and literally murdering their own children at other idols. And God sends Jeremiah to preach a message to them that says, God won't take this. He won't stand for this. Judge, if you continue down this path, judgment will come. And he preaches that message for 40 years with no one listening. That's why he's the weeping prophet. 40 years. And if you read through Jeremiah, you will see that brokenness all over the place. It is not an encouraging book. (laughs) It is not an encouraging book to read what the weeping prophet has to say. However, many of you love verses from Jeremiah, and I can guess where they come from. There's 52 chapters in this book. 52 chapters in Jeremiah, and four of them are hopeful. 29 through 33-ish. 
a little bit on either side of that. That's probably where you pull verses from. Let me give you some examples. Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you. I like that. Man, I like that. Jeremiah 30, 18, he will restore the fortunes of the house of Israel. I like fortunes. Want those restored. Jeremiah 31, 3, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Jeremiah 33, 3, call to me and I will answer you and tell you great and hidden things you have not known. You guys, they're true. I'm not poking fun at them right now. They are absolutely true. But we do not quote Jeremiah 15, 5, I will bring bereavement and destruction on my people for they have not changed their ways. God's judgment is attached to his mercy. And the reason why he needed to bring judgment on Jerusalem was an act of mercy for a people who could not see him anymore, who were blinded to him. And so I need you to understand that the, the beauty that we have in Jeremiah of hope sits in the context of grief and pain and suffering and judgment. And those two are not separate. They're woven together like a tapestry. And in our humanity, we want to jump straight to Resurrection Sunday and say, Lord, I'm done with the grief. I'm done with the sorrow. Let's get past it. And God says, no, actually, I'm bigger than that. That means you're chasing happiness and pleasure, which are temporary. I'm here to give you joy and hope, which can coexist in suffering. Jeremiah knew all about living in the Saturday. As a matter of fact, the promises that we see that he's writing about he won't get to see personally. Part of his mission to build and to plant, not just to break down and destroy, but to build and to plant, the things that he is planting will bloom, but not for him. He's planting for a future generation. Man, does that preach this morning, church? Philippians 3.10, Tommy mentioned this a couple weeks ago, but I want to, to double down on this this morning is a verse that we all love. I want to know Christ in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. And I asked them specifically to put it up this way because this is the way that we read it. This is exactly the way that we read it. We love that first part. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. And then we carry the second part, like you know those pharmaceutical commercials that tell you all the great stuff about what they're doing? Then they hide all that other garbage right at the end real fast. That's the way that we read this. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. <laughs> but really, we don't participate in the power of his resurrection without sharing in the fellowship of his sufferings. We don't participate in the hope that comes in his glory without also participating in his judgment. Jeremiah 15, Jeremiah 15, 5 is attached to Jeremiah 31, 10 through 14. And you can try to rip them apart, my friends, but then you aren't chasing hope anymore. You're chasing a quick fix. And we are promised hope. We are promised hope. We're not promised happiness and pleasure in every moment. We are promised hope and joy. In the last minutes with his disciples, 
John 15, 16, 17, after he washes their feet in the upper room and Jesus has one last teaching moment with them. It's such a beautiful passage of scripture. So tender. Three different times in those chapters, Jesus says, I came for you to have hope. I came to fill you with hope. I came that you might have hope, that your joy can be full in me. Within the pain, within the suffering. Maybe that's why C.S. Lewis said that God whispers in our pleasures and speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pain. Listen, you might not find happiness and pleasure in the Saturday, in the Saturday of Easter weekend, but you can find joy and truth and hope. And if you didn't hear that in Jen's story this morning, then you weren't listening. She's found joy. She's found joy and she has found hope. Our God is a God who can redeem and restore. You know that, right? Jeremiah 31, 12. I love the image that was in our passage this morning that that he's looking for a life that is like a well-watered garden. He's saying that that, that the people of God will flourish that again. He paints that picture out in front of them. Your life will be like a well-watered garden again. And these these other prophets speak to this. Isaiah 61, 3, that we serve a God who can bring beauty from ashes. Ezekiel 37, that he can breathe life into dry bones. Joel 3.25, that he can restore the years that the locusts have eaten. And you guys, I believe I've preached it from this stage that the Romans 8.28 promise that God can take all things and that he can work them for good. I believe in that. I stand on that promise with both feet and you should too as a congregation right now. Okay? But let me slide in a word from Jeremiah. But maybe not yet. I believe that he works all things for good, but I believe that he does that in his way and on his timeline. And I am not entitled to dragging that into the present and saying, God, I know that you can work all things for good, so do it in this particular way and do it right now. I'm not entitled to that. I'm not the God of the universe. And I can stand on that promise just like Jeremiah could for a promise that was yet to come. I can hold on to Romans 8, 28 and say, God, I know that you can take what we are walking through as a congregation and you can bring healing and you can bring restoration and you can bring beauty from ashes and you can bring hope. All of these things we can stand on with both feet because when our God makes a promise, it's true. I don't have to question it. But I don't know how long the Saturday is going to last either. And it's just as true tomorrow and just as true next week and just as true in two months as it is today. It is. Jeremiah looked forward to a time where the people of God would be a well-watered garden. But again, I want to remind you one more time, he personally would not see it. He's called to preach a vision he himself wouldn't live through. I, um, John, John 11 has always fascinated me. And whether you've been around church your whole life or not very much at all, you've probably heard the story in John 11 about Jesus and Lazarus. Well, Lazarus is one of three siblings. There's Mary and Martha and Lazarus, and they're all very dear friends of Jesus. They all have history with him. They've been a part of his ministry. He loves them a lot. Jesus is away preaching in John 10. I don't know exactly where, somewhere across the Jordan River. He's doing ministry. And it says that in that moment, Lazarus gets really ill. 
And so they send word to Jesus and they say, hey, uh, your friend is sick. He's dying, in fact. And Jesus tells his disciples, hey, this isn't going to end in, de in, God, in, in death. It's going to end in God's glory. Doesn't tell them exactly what that means, but he stays there. He doesn't go back. He doesn't go back to be with his friends in the midst of their mourning and their, their sorrow. And Lazarus dies. And so days later, when Jesus returns to Mary and Martha, who have freshly buried their brother, and they believe in Jesus, they know he has the power to heal. And so Martha's the first one out. She makes it out to Jesus first. And she's, there's a dialogue between the two. And Martha's got some questions. Why didn't you come? Why weren't you here? Why didn't you show up? I know you could have made a difference. And that's that famous passage where Jesus looks her in the eyes and he says, I'm the resurrection. I'm the life. He who believes in me will never die. But man, it's, it's really hard to hear that when you've just buried your brother. She doesn't understand it. She tries. She has questions. There's a dialogue. She doesn't fully get it. After Martha, it's Mary's turn. Mary's got some questions too, but she's got more tears than questions. So she asked the same question. Why didn't you come? Why didn't you show up? And then she just breaks down and she's bawling in front of Jesus John 11.33 says that Jesus is sitting with Mary as she sobs. And it says that Jesus himself was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And then, I, then we get the shortest verse in the Bible, but perhaps the most profound. And in John 11.36, it just simply says that Jesus wept. Sits with Mary and weeps. Now, if you're keeping track, Why? I mean, he could have just said, Mary, he's going to be alive in like 10 minutes. I'm going to take care of this. He can just dismiss it. He can just fill her in on what, why? Why is, does the God of the universe sit and weep with her? Because he understands suffering. He's near to the brokenhearted and the crushed in spirit, we're told in Scripture. And in that moment, he looks in on Mary's pain and he doesn't just empathize, he feels it with her. And man, think about the theological implications of the God of the universe just sitting with her and crying on Mary's Saturday because resurrection has not yet come for her brother. And she doesn't know how the story is going to end at this point. How else should she react? God of the universe is big enough to answer Martha's questions. The God of the universe is big enough to sit and empathize with Mary's tears. And the God of the universe is big enough to bring Lazarus back to life when he chooses to. You see, Jesus knew that you and I would live in the Saturday. Remember, he said, John 16, in this world, you will have suffering. But what? Take heart, because I've overcome the world. The promise does sit out in front of us. Within the grief and the sorrow, you can set your jaw and set your mind and say, you know what? I can understand that God will be there and is present now with me. The presence through the suffering is the promise. So you say, okay, Ben, all of this is great. What do we do? <laughs> You've talked about what God has done in the past. That's what Jeremiah said, that he scattered Israel and restored and redeemed. We've got this, this future promise that God lays out in front of us. 
What about the present? Well, actually, Jeremiah 31 says something about that. I don't know if you're going to like it. Thus says the Lord, verse 7, sing aloud with gladness for Jacob and raise shouts for the chief of the nations. Proclaim, give praise, and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. What does Jeremiah say that we do in the midst of suffering, in the present tense? We sing our songs, church. We sing our songs before the prayers have been answered. We sing of our great God before the sunrise is visible. When the healing hasn't come yet, and when hope is still in the future tense, we still sing our songs and we ask God for him to save us and we trust, just like the weeping prophet did, that God's promises are true, whether they sit in the promise of the future. He's still the God of the present. So that's how we live, holding tightly to that ache of hope. There is an ache to it. And this is not just what we're walking through as a congregation right now. Like I'm preaching this to the people that I'm praying through who have a cancer diagnosis. And I'm preaching this for the people who I know or who are going through infertility treatments. And I'm preaching this for people that I know in this congregation whose kids are walking through a really rough season right now. And you don't know where the hope is going to be. Like you don't have answers to these questions yet. You're praying desperate prayers, just like Hannah did at the temple in the Old Testament. You're throwing these things out and you are pouring yourself out before the Lord and you don't know how the story ends. It's okay. Sing your songs. Saturday is really, really hard on faith. And as the people of God, I want you to understand this morning that joy and hope are so much different than happiness and pleasure. I want the party too. I want the flourishing that he talks about. I want the abundance that Jeremiah talks about here that's laid out for his people. And it is coming in so many different ways. It is coming, but maybe not yet. And we believe that God can and will redeem and restore all things, that he can restore the years the locusts have eaten, beauty from ashes, in his way, in his timing. And we look forward to that promise, just as Jeremiah looked forward to his. If you brought the elements in with you, please grab these now. I can't think of a better application for what we're talking about than the thing that you're holding in your hand right now. We are not fixing our eyes on our church staff, not on our mission statement, not on our building, not on our plans. Maybe two weeks ago, that's what you're doing. Not anymore. We fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, do you hear that? Not in the present tense for him, but who for, the, who for the joy set before him out in advance endured the cross, walked through his suffering, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That's Hebrews 12, 2. We fix our eyes on Jesus, who knew how to live out exactly what we're talking about, who for the joy set before him endured the suffering in the present. And so you have a representation in your hand of what it means truly to live in the Saturday with an ache for Sunday. And you guys, maybe God brings that tomorrow. I don't know. I know he will. 
And I believe that promise is true for you personally. And I believe it's true for us corporately. But in the meantime, we express our faith by saying, Jesus, we identify with your suffering as we take the bread together representing his body. And the juice representing his blood. And so I just tell you, be hopeful, church. Be hopeful. Flourishing will come. And the Lord promises that he is close to us as we wait for it.